Hi, all. Welcome back to Woe is Media, second week of Pride Month. I'm going to be going first today, but Annabelle, tell us what you have to offer us. So I've got two stories. The first is about President Biden's big adventure abroad. He's making a lot of stops and talking to a lot of people in an effort to restore the American image in other countries because there's some allies who were not super happy with us the last four years. So I'm going to talk about that and kind of what his goals are and what's going to be discussed. And then for my second story, um, Alyssa has inspired me a little bit to do a pride project of my own. So I, I'm going to highlight some CEOs in the business world who are part of the LGBTQ community and talk a little bit about like them and their background and what they've done for the community. So that'll be good. I did not know about this, guys. I'm so excited. Oh, my God. I decided to surprise her. I I haven't decided yet if I'm going to do it for the rest of the month or not, because it kind of depends on, like, the news that comes out. This was a slower week, so I was like, this would be a good time to do it. So, but I definitely wanted to get a pride story in there at some point. So we'll definitely have it this week, and we'll see what happens for the rest of June. That's so exciting. Oh my gosh. Yay. Okay. So I'm going to be going first today because I only have one story to share with you. It is my pride project story and we're going to kick off. Well, not really kick off because it was yesterday, but in celebration of Filipino independence day, that was June 12th. I am highlighting a Filipino filmmaker that I just recently learned a lot about and they are so cool. So if you will, please join me on the journey of the life and legacy of Lena Broca. All right. Alyssa is a huge fan of the Filipino community and their culture. It is very close to her heart. So I'm not shocked in the slightest that she found this combination of people, but I love it. Um, I also, I promise I'm not like a weird fangirl, like from the outside, I have a lot of Filipino friends and like from their standpoint, they've adopted me into the culture and I don't, uh, I, play, I try my best not to exploit the culture as best I can. I just want to celebrate it because I do have a pedestal being a white woman yes. and I want to bring a spotlight to a beautiful country and a beautiful culture. So She's done her research. Yes. Also, I would like to say I have consulted with some of my Filipino friends uh, for some names as well as um, areas in this story. So if I mispronounce them, I'm sorry. I'm trying to do my best. So. Catalino Ortiz Broca was born in Pilar, Sosogon, in the Bicol region of the Philippines on April 3rd, 1939, which it is my friend Abby and Marty's birthday. So shout out to them. We love some Aries. Mm -hmm. He did grow up in the San Jose Nueva Ecija in the central Luzon region. So it's close by, but it's a little further south, I believe, if I looked at the map correctly. He grew up with his father being a huge, huge influence on him. His father taught him math, English, as well as art. And sadly, his father was killed in a political murder when Lino was very, very young. That's scary. Mm -hmm. So following this incident, his mother, himself, and his brother fled to live with his mother's sister in, I believe, the San Jose Nueva Ecija region. And he suffered physical and verbal abuse from his relatives at a very young age. And he was forced to do hard labor this time too. It's not good. No, not at all. He graduated from Nueva Ecija High School in 1956. And he was awarded a scholarship to the country's leading academic institute of the time, the University of the Philippines. Yes, good brava. 
where he initially majored in pre-law, but he dropped that to study literature instead. He joined, I loved how they phrased this. It wasn't the drama club. It was the dramatic club, which <laughs> me, I, know. I was a member of that club. That sounds way more fun. <laughs> Still am. <laughs> like I'm the president of that club. Um, but while he was in this club, he was actually criticized for for his provincial accent and demeanor. Like a lot of these kids at the University of the Philippines like came from the city, like a metropolitan area. And he was from the countryside and they were like, oh, you sound like a hick basically. So he would watch American movies to practice his English and improve his accent because of all this criticism. And the club finally accepted him, but only as a stagehand. I know, right? But you know, we love stagehands. That's what people want to do and we, we support. He plays the thing and the stagehands help it be a thing. Absolutely. <laughs> he eventually dropped out of the University of Philippines and he converted to Mormonism and dedicated himself to missionary work, which led to work with a leper colony in Hawaii. Oh, that's good. Yeah. He traveled to, I believe, the continental U.S. later for menial jobs in San Francisco. And he actually turned down the chance for American citizenship citizenship sorry how i said that american citizenship (laughs) opting to return to the philippines to revive the interest in filmmaking in his country because obviously it was really popping off in america at this time but he was like i want to like give my home country some love too i want to bring this love that i have to them and show them how great this can be for our economy Mm -hmm. as well as just the overall morale yeah absolutely and pride yes exactly filipino pride um, he had an interest in films starting at a very young age, but he also eventually joined the Philippine Educational Theater Association and met the founder, Cecil Guidote. In 1970, he made his first film called Wanted Perfect Mother. I like it. <laughs> Get into that. Dramatic title. And it was a box office hit, and it was also based on The Sound of Music. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. One Wasn't of my favorite films. I think so. I believe so. Um, it was the only film that he made that didn't focus on later themes in his film, film work, which I will get into in a second. Most of his films became very personal and it focused on the plights of the Filipina people at the time. They were very character driven and they focused on the common people. And often he casted many unknown actors to focus more on the story and not the celebrity of the actors that were in the films. I respect that. You know, sometimes it's not about who's in it. It's about what the content is. Also giving more people a chance to become famous, which we love. Yeah, good point. Good way to get discovered, I'm sure. Yeah. He allowed the theme of sexuality to be discussed in his films, which was very uncommon for Filipino filmmakers at this time. Mm -hmm. He portrayed very sexually confident and strong women, which we love. Oh my goodness. I know, right? The Philippines, if I'm not mistaken, they're a heavily Catholic country, aren't they? Correct. Okay, so yeah, this is does not roll with a lot of um, the Catholic party line. I can say that as somebody who grew up in the Catholic church and went to a Catholic high school. Yes. I don't know the exact... Uh, laws on like same-sex unions in the Philippines but I do know that the current president is not a fan sure so (laughs) sorry Um, homosexual themes were also present in his narratives as well Um, I don't know if I mentioned but Lena Broca was hella gay so well given that this is your pride project 
one. I know. I just wanted to make sure that I was like, it's good to know that he is in fact hella gay. (laughs) Yes. And he was also a Mormon. He was a gay Mormon. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. So very, very heavily involved in the Mormon church as well. So let me see where I am. Um, he utilized naive, naive, quote unquote, naive country citizens as a reflection of his own self and finding out that the promise of a good life is nothing but an illusion to some like growing up in the countryside and coming to a more metropolitan area. He was like, well, just because I moved here doesn't always mean that things are immediately going to look up. And that's what he was trying to portray in his films at the time. So now I'm going to go into a short list of some of his more notable my father is texting me. Hi, dad. Um, I'm going to go into a short list of some of his more notable films. Um, once again, there is going to be Tagalog words used in these titles. Um, I apologize if I mispronounce them. I'm trying my best. Okay. Our first one is Tinimbang Kan Ingunik Kulang, which translates to weighed but found wanting. Weighed but found wanting? Yes. Okay. It was released in 1974 and concerned the son of a wealthy man reaching out to the village outcasts after being dissuaded by the hypocrisy of the wealthy. Okay. (laughs) It won six awards, including Best Picture at the FAMAS, which is the Filipino Academy of Movie Arts and Sciences. It's kind of like the Oscars, but in the Philippines. Right. Next, we have probably his best known work, which is In Siang, which is how I came to know Lena Broca. I listened to a podcast called I Saw What You Did, and it's by these two women of color, one of which is a Filipino woman. And she picked In Siang as one of her um, movies for one of the weeks. And I was just like enthralled with the stories that she told about Lena Broca. So In Siang was released in 1978. It is the revenge tale of a girl who is seeking revenge against her mother's lover for raping her. Oh my goodness. Yes. It is. It's very intense. I will. I'm sorry. I didn't warn you beforehand, but most of his films have very intense um, plot points. So trigger warning to anyone. I apologize for that coming in. Movie was the first entry by a Filipino filmmaker at the Cannes film festival. And once again, it is his most well-known film. Mm -hmm. Next, we have Manila Samingang Kuko Inga Liwanak, which translates to Manila in the Claws of Darkness. Ooh, spooky. Yes. It was released in 1976. And according to Culture Trip, which is an article that I read during my research, quote unquote, the plot revolves around provincial girls and their hand to mouth existence in the city. Sad. Yes. This film also won six awards. and, And I'm, I believe it also swept pretty well at the FAMAS. Mm-hmm. Next, we have Jaguar, released in 1980. It was nominated for the Palme d'Or, which is the highest award available at the Cannes Film Festival. He won Best Director at the Filipino Academy of Movie Arts and Scientists, FAMAS. And according to Culture Trip, the plot point is as follows, quote, kind-hearted country boy named Poldo, who works in the city as a security guard and is drawn into the seedy underbelly of city life. CD underbelly. underbelly. We're making like hand gestures. Next, we have Bianco Capizza Patalim, which translates to This is My Country, 1984. Yes, it is. It's my country and I want it now. (laughs) 
This was also nominated for the Palme d'Or, as far as I can find. And it is about a man struggling between right and wrong as his workplace is embroiled in a labor union dispute. So like Norma Ray, but in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get more into this in a second, but this film in particular was deemed subversive by the Marcos government. Ooh. And it underwent a legal battle in order to be shown in its uncut form. Wow, okay. Yes. Next, we have Macho Dancer, released in 1988, which explores the realities of a young, poor, rural gay man who, after being dumped by his American boyfriend, is forced to support himself and his family in Manila's red light district. Oh my goodness. Yes. That one sounds a little bit more personal just for like the countryside and gay portions Mm -hmm. of it. Yes. I I hope he never had to do that, but. As far as I could tell, I don't think so, but you know. Once again, who knows? This film was heavily censored for political and sexual content, as you can imagine. And Lena Broca actually secretly smuggled an uncensored 35 millimeter of this film out of the country to evade government censorship. And that uncut copy is now in the Museum of Modern Art collection. And I can't remember if it's in the American MoMA or the Filipino MoMA, but It is being held somewhere in very prestigious condition. And the last film that I have for us today is Ora Pronobis, Pronobis, which translates to Fight for Us, which was released in 1989. And it was banned by then President Corazon Aquino due to subversive messages. And it is about political detainees escaping the Marcos dictatorship following the 1986 EDSA revolution. Now, Many of you may not be familiar with the history of the Philippines, and I keep referencing this Marcos government, and you may be saying to yourself, who the hell is Marcos? (laughs) Well, don't you worry, because I have a short history lesson to go over with you now. In 1965, Ferdinand Marcos Sr. was elected as the 10th president of the Philippines. And during his first term, he increased industrialization and solid infrastructure and helped to establish many, many schools in the country. He increased funding to the armed forces of the Philippines and mobilized them, sending 10,540 soldiers to Vietnam who were working as allies at the time. I believe they're still allies, but this was, you know, during... Vietnam obviously was like kind of in the broils of the Vietnamese war mm-hmm. and they were trying to work together. Because scary times in the Eastern Asian part of the world. Yes, very tumultuous. That's the word I'm looking for. Very tumultuous <laughs> times all over the world. Oh, yes. So in 1968, Senator Benino S. Aquino Jr. warns everyone, not just a few people, everyone, that Marcos is establishing a, quote, garrison state by ballooning the armed forces budget and militarizing civilian government offices. But no one seemed to really listen to Benino because in 1969, Marcos wins re-election. And now, you know, we talked about during his first term, everything was like, seemed great. Things were up and up. Well, in his second term, The country falls into economic turmoil. There becomes new demands for educational reform. The crime rate rises. And there seems to be a growing communist insurgency about. Violent demonstrations and protests begin to break out because of all these things happening. And 
in the 1970s, now we're transitioning into a new decade, socialist youth organization Kabatang Makabayan joined with the Communist Party in order to protest in front of Congress. And this demonstration included throwing a coffin, stuffed alligator, and stones at Ferdinand and Nimel de Marcos during his State of the Nation address. Wow, that's intense. Yeah, very. Activists then rammed the gates at the presidential palace with a fire truck and stormed the palace grounds, tossing rocks, pillboxes, and Molotov cocktails at like security. These are very specific items they're throwing at people. I know, right? I was like reading, I was like, this is oddly specific. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to know the, the significance of the pillboxes. So if anyone knows, please inform me. In the afternoon, at least two activists were confirmed dead and several were injured by police. Following this incident, rumors of a coup d'etat brewed, and a U.S. Senate Foreign Relations Committee report detailed a group of mostly retired colonels and generals were organizing a revolutionary junta shortly after the 1969 election to discredit and kill President Marcos. Wow. This plot also included figures such as Vice President Ferdinand Lopez and Marcos's election rival, Sergio Asmeña Jr. Yeah. So it's like... Everyone seems to be really, really up in arms against Marcos. Right. Now, August 21st, 1971, the Liberal Party holds a campaign rally at the Plaza Miranda in Quiapo, Manila, to proclaim senatorial bets as well as their Manila mayoral candidate. So just showing up, giving the business, whatnot. Two grenades were reportedly launched onto the stage, injuring most present. Nine were killed and 95 people were injured. Oh, that's awful. Yes. Marcos suspends the writ of habeas corpus at this time in order to arrest those responsible. So he's like, I don't give a damn. If you're not present, you're being arrested. Wow. So he also accused the communist government of the crime and declassified CIA documents also implicate Marcos in at least one of those deadly bombings. So I'm sorry, my cat is coming to play. He's very interested in the history of the Philippines. <laughs> like mother, like son. <laughs> <laughs> On September 23rd, 1972, Defense Minister Juan Ponce in Anlil was ambushed on his way home in an assassination attempt. He Ooh. survived, but many believe that this was actually staged. Really? Yes. Wow, that would, that's intense. And it's interesting because later Anlil admitted that it was staged, but later retracted his statement. So no one really knows. Conspiracy. It is a conspiracy. He curtailed press freedom and other civil liberties, and he abolished Congress altogether. What? He controlled the media establishments and ordered the arrest of opposition leaders and militant activists, including his staunchest critics, Senator Manino Aquino Jr., like I mentioned before, and Jose W. Diocno, who virtually turning the Philippines into a totalitarian dictatorship. Mm -hmm. And this was when martial law was officially introduced. Wow. And initially it was well-received, like the crime rate decreased upon the implementation of the curfew and political opponents were allowed into exile. So, you know, they're like, I don't want to be here. Just send me somewhere else. Yeah, fair. However, over the next nine years, military excesses increased. There were 3,257 extrajudicial killings, 35,000 individual tortured, and 70,000 were incarcerated during this time. Good Lord. Reportedly, 
737 Filipinos disappeared between the years 1975 and 1985. But the GDP quadrupled from 1972's 8 billion to 32.45 billion in 1980. Well, that's what matters. It's okay if people die. You just have to, you know, improve your GDP. Exactly. That's all we care about. That is not actually how we feel. That, that is 100% sarcasm, sarcasm. I hope. <laughs> Just um, making making sure people know. Even as an economics person, I, uh, yeah, I would never support homicide. At the no, not at all. <laughs> there was massive and uncontrolled corruption, as you can imagine, following the Declaration of Martial Law. Estimates by the World Bank reported the Marcos family's stolen wealth was at 10 billion U.S. dollars. Oof. And I don't know the current standing of the Filipino um, currency versus the USD, but it would have been different back then anyway, but exactly. So plundering through government monopolies, crony loans, forced takeover of the public and private enterprises. There was direct public treasury rating, like everything was going, excuse my language, but to shit basically. Uh-huh. Yeah. Martial law officially ended in 1981. And the opposition boycotted the June 16th, 1981 presidential election because Marcos ended up winning. Sure. But, you know, with everything Wide going corruption. on, it's like, yeah. yeah, it's like, did he actually win or are y'all just saying he won? Opposition leader Benino Nino Aquino Jr., once again, a heavy player in this whole deal, was assassinated in 1983 upon his return from exile. Oh, that's sad. And he he's like, I don't... I don't think the term martyr is a proper word to use in this situation, but he is remembered as a very like important figure in what is to come. Great. So I believe one of the airports in Manila is named after him. So pressure from the United States, as well as um, mounting pressures within the country, culminated in a snap presidential election on February 7th, 1986. And this election was marred by reports of violence and tampering on both sides. The official election canvasser, the Commission of Elections, declared Marcos the winner by 1.5 million votes, so to speak. By contrast, the partial 70% tally of the National Citizens Movement for Free Elections, which is an incredible election watchdog in the Philippines, said that Benigno Aquino's widow, Corazon Aquino, won. She ended up running in place of her husband. Mm, okay. She was she was over it. Yes. Um, they said she won by 782,000 votes. Well, obviously the results were not accepted by Okino and her supporters that Marcos won. And international observees, including U.S. delegation led by Indiana Republican Senator Richard Luger, denounced this as well. So mm. the U.S. was involved in this. General Fidel Ramos and Defense Minister Juan Ponce Anil withdrew government support, effectively defecting from the Marcos government. And in 1986, the Peaceful People Power, also known as the EDSA Revolution, which I mentioned before, forced Marcos and his family into exile in Hawaii. Okay. So he's he's good. He's gone. Yeah, he's gone. During the meeting with Vice President Salvador Laro, Marcos offered to return 90% of his ill-gotten wealth to the Filipino people in exchange for being buried back in the Philippines beside his mother, an offer also disclosed to Enrique Zobel. However, his offer was rebuffed by the Aquino government. However, he was eventually returned to the Philippines four years after his death. 
He died in Honolulu on September 28th, 1989 of kidney, heart, and lung ailments. Wow. Ouch. <laughs> yes. Ouch. Very, very painful. Imelda, the former first lady and his wife returned with her children to the Philippines in 1991. And this is what I found very interesting. She ended up serving as a member of the Filipina house of representatives from Lete's first district from 1995 until 1998. And as a member of the Philippine house of representatives from the Ilocos Norte second district from 2010 to 2019. Nice. So she's just recently retired from the government. Yes, she's still alive. She's, I believe, 91, I believe. Wow, okay. And she's living in the Philippines. Like, she's fine. Like, nice. she's chilling. Corazon Aquino became the 11th president of the Philippines on February 25th, 1986. A new constitution was adopted as a result, ending the Fourth Republic and ushering in the Fifth Republic. So now we're going to go back to Lena Broca. We're, we're done with history for a second. And we're going to go back to him. Broca was appointed by President Aquino as member of the 1986 Constitutional Committee to draft the new constitution, but he eventually resigned. And on May 22nd, 1991, Broca and actor William Lorenzo were leaving a music lounge called The Spindle. Okay. In a 1991 Toyota Corolla driven by Lorenzo. Holler, I used to have a Corolla. They were headed home to Tangdang Sora in Quezon City, Metro Manila, but around 1.30 a.m., the car crashed into an electrical pole on East Avenue following Lorenzo swerving to avoid hitting a tricycle. Both were rushed to East Avenue Medical Center, but Lena Broca was pronounced dead on arrival. Lorenzo was in critical condition, but, quote, out of danger. In 1997, Lena Broca was posthumously awarded the National Artist for Film, and his name is included on the Batayog Nga Maga Bayani's Wall of Remembrance, which recognizes heroes and martyrs who fought against martial law under the Marcos regime. He's also been recognized for the martial law fight by, the, by his alma mater, the University of the Philippines. The Development Council of the Philippines organized to a retrospective of Broca's films on September 20th through the 25th of 2016. And this included screenings of Broca's films and the documentary called Signed, Lena Broca. And that was held at the Cinematheque in Manila, a symposium, a panel discussion, and martial law survivors um, spoke at this event. And a film editing workshop was also held as part of the retrospective. A law professor by the name of Tony Lavigna noted the significance of the 1990 Philippine Supreme Court decision in the Broca versus Anil case, where Broca, Ben Cervantes, Howie Servino were arrested by officers from the Northern Police District at a protest rally in 1985, while Ferdinand Marcos was still president. Broca, Cervantes, and Servino were subsequently charged with illegal assembly and indicting to sedition. Ooh. In a decision issued after the EDSA people power revolution that ousted Marcos, the Supreme Court ruled that the criminal proceedings against Broca and the rest of the individuals amounted to persecution and were, quote, undertaken by state officials in bad faith. So not really like a reversal, but they're like, we realize that we messed up Mm -hmm. because of this. Contestable Nation Space Cinema, Cultural Politics, and Transnationalism in the Marcos Brocas Philippines, written by U of Philippines professor Rolando B. Tolino, focuses on Brocas' engagement with society as well as the dictatorship. And I'm going to leave you on this quote from that book that I just mentioned. 
quote, Broca's film engagement and critique of the Marcos politics provided the condition of possibility that allows for the dictatorship to cohere and fragment and for the 1970s and 1980s Philippine cinema to be an important receptacle and symptom of negotiations with the dictatorship, the latter allowing for the foregrounding of subversions to the state and its order. And that is the story of Lena Broca. Wow, what a life. What a life. A lot of work he did. I like how he wasn't afraid to tackle that. Oh no. Very intense topics. He was out here in the streets. Like, and I believe I've read like very, very small snippets of this, but I believe that what's his name? Scorsese is actually working with uh, Filipino cinema institutes in the Philippines to help restore many of his films right now, which I think is just so cool. It is cool. So I'm going to do more research on that and get back to you. But yeah, that's my story for the week. Awesome. I love it. Thank you. Hey, I will get into Biden's big adventure abroad. So as of Thursday, President Biden was in the United Kingdom. This was the first time he's gone abroad since he's taken office in January 2021. Um, And no American president has been in Europe since January of 2020, for obvious reasons. (laughs) It was not safe to do so. Uh, (laughs) So it's been a while since in-person meetings between the two major leaders. Um, And while he was over there, the president spoke with some American troops who were stationed over there. So he's kind of making the rounds. Um, On Friday, June 11th, there was a G7 summit. Um, And quick reminder, if you're not familiar with the G7 nations, it's basically like seven of the biggest countries, economically speaking. Um, There are some notable exceptions like China and Russia in theory should be in there for size but ideologically the countries who are in it are on uh, one one side of the fence and China and Russia are on the other side but the, much. G- yeah. <laughs> the G7 is made up of Japan, Italy, the UK, the USA, France, Germany, and Canada so basically if you posted an Olympics there's a solid chance you're in the G7. It's kind of a good way to think about it. That is <laughs> yeah. a good way to think about it. With the exception of Russia and China. Um, but so there's a G7, G7 summit on Friday. Um, and President Biden also met with British Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And they were kind of expected to talk a little bit more about having a wide ranging Atlantic charter between the US and the UK and a task force on reopening travel between the two countries now that things are starting to clear up a little bit COVID-wise. Yeah. Um, Basically, the whole goal of President Biden's trip is to restore faith in democracy as a force for good and the whole America is back theme. Because we know that President Trump's slogan for his campaign was make America great again and then keep America great when he was rerunning for election. Yes. Uh, And he very much had an America first policy, which regardless of what your stance is on that, is not the best for foreign diplomacy. Um, People tend to think of the U.S. as a very, like, egocentric company, company, country. (laughs) Like, there's a lot of companies here. Um, As a very egocentric country, kind of more, you know, worried about ourselves before anyone else. And even when we get into these, like, alliances and kind of strategic groups, such as NATO, a lot of people think that like we're not really going to be a major player that we're just kind of there for symbolic reasons and it's not so much about what we can do for the group it's more about what we can get out of it which you know I can't say I have a ton of experience looking at American foreign policy but I can understand kind of that sentiment to some degree yeah so I think Biden is trying to 
take a little bit more of a giving approach rather than just like what America can get out of this. It's like what America can give back to the rest of the world as well, which is kind of a nice change. We love that. We absolutely love that. Um, after the G7 summit, he went to Brussels to meet with NATO and the European Union. Friendly reminder, the UK is not in the EU anymore. They voted themselves out of the EU tribe. Um, the tribe has spoken and that was Brexit. They are not the world's next top model. That is right. Um, so he met with NATO and the EU and later in the month, he is going to have a summit in Geneva, Switzerland, which we all know Geneva is generally the place for big international meetings because Switzerland is always neutral. They never pick sides. They don't never. They are 100% neutral. So Vladimir Putin is going to meet with President Biden in Geneva. Yeah. So that's a big meeting. Um, we talked a little bit last week about kind of the hacking that had been going on with a lot of major companies and how a lot of them are Russian-based organizations. And even if it's not at the hands of the Russian government, Russia is tolerating these hackers because they're, you know, tanking American companies. You know, a lot of people think it's uh, something that they were trying to do ahead of this summit with Putin and with President Biden. So we will see what happens there. Um, it'll be a really good chance to kind of strengthen these foreign alliances. Um, and Biden is really trying to show that democracy is better than autocracy. So autocracy with like one guy having a ton of power, which would be like in China and in Russia. Um, and China and Russia just, they've become such large countries with their populations and like economically, especially China is like a really big threat. So China, I think is gonna continue to be a major player in foreign markets and very much somebody that the US is threatened by. And we're gonna have to, you know, do our best to kind of keep the division and keep as many countries on our side as possible. Um, during this trip, they're also gonna talk about things like climate change um, and global vaccination efforts, which are definitely a good thing. President Biden just promised to send doses to over 100 countries of the Pfizer vaccine. So that'll be good. I think now that I believe about 60% of Americans are vaccinated, it'll continue to um, happen here, but also other countries definitely need to catch up as well. So that'll be good. Get on our level. Yeah, get on our level. No, basically. actually don't get on our level in any other way, shape or form. Vaccinations are fine, but yeah. nothing else. <laughs> yeah. so, um, President Biden thinks it'll be a good way to kind of combat Russia. Um, he's expected to confront President Putin about the election interference and the ransomware attacks. I mean, I think we all know Putin's just going to deny it. There's a lot of sketchy stuff that goes on in Russia. They operate through a lot of back channels and it's not exactly the cleanest country in terms of corruption, which not saying the U.S. doesn't have its own problems, but we all suck. Russia's got an interesting history. So um, the, the meeting with Putin is not necessarily expected to resolve or change anything, but it kind of needs to happen because I honestly feel like a lot of this is symbolic politics. I feel like President Biden just needs to show everyone that he's interested in foreign diplomacy. And he does actually have a lot of experience with it because when he was in the Senate, he was on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And when he was Obama's vice president, you know, he was able to go abroad and meet some foreign dignitaries and stuff like that. So he does have more experience with this coming into office than President Trump did when he was in office. Um, and it's just a bigger priority for him. So that's yes. kind of something that he's trying to show is that this is a priority for America right now. And he's just wanting to make some positive changes abroad. Um, President Trump, when he was in office, spoke out very strongly against NATO, the North Atlantic Trade Organization. He was not a fan of that. He didn't think it did anything good for America. 
President Biden is, you know, a little bit more supportive of it and kind of wants to form better connections with those countries and, you know, have it be more of a symbiotic relationship. But one of the biggest things that the G7 discussed, um, and it, it still has to pass, it hasn't formally been passed yet, but this is exciting. It may not sound exciting because it's about taxes, but it is exciting because the G7 countries, they've recently decided to end corporate tax havens. So all G7 countries have agreed to have a minimum corporate tax rate of 15%. Okay. For a company who has profit margins of over 10%, and this would pretty much end corporate freeloading, which is a big deal. Because um, right now, a lot of tech companies have headquarters in Europe, and they've specifically picked countries where they have like very low tax rates, like Apple, for example, their oh. European headquarters is in Ireland. And it's like 12% is the tax rate, which is stupid low compared to the 21% it is in the States. So yeah. they're paying significantly less. But um, they're changing the rules to where taxes are going to be paid proportionally based on where your sales are made. So if you make 50% of your sales in America, you're going to have to pay whatever the tax rate is right now, it's 21%. They're trying to get it raised. You'd have to pay 21% on 50% of your profits. Okay. So yeah, it'd be a lot more fair. Um, and with the G7, you know, those are all very rich and powerful countries that are going to make up a lot of the sales for these major corporations. So it's effectively moving taxes from going back into the shareholders. Like if they're buying back stock or giving out dividends or something like that, the taxes are effectively just going to go to the government, which a lot of people are not a big fan of, but a lot of people think that these corporations just have been, you know, it's been too easy for them for too long. Yeah. And I mean, if you're doing business in a country, some of the money at the very least, in my opinion, should go back to the people who are buying your products and working there and kind of keeping everything in business. So um, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was in London for this meeting, so she was part of it too, um, just kind of, kind of as a representative for the U.S., even though she's obviously not the president. Um, she's very supportive of it. She said the global minimum tax would end the race to the bottom in corporate taxation and ensure fairness for the middle class and working people in the U.S. and around the world, because basically a lot of countries are trying to undercut each other with their mm -hmm. tax rates so they can attract businesses because they know that the more or the lower their tax rate is, the more likely a company is to set up their headquarters there. And it will create jobs for their local economy, but it's also like they're not getting any money out of it because yeah. they're not paying taxes. So again, this still has to pass. Um, it's not official yet, but the hope is to get approval and this will you know, prevent other countries from having no taxes or extremely low taxes. So yeah, it'll be kind of a reshuffling of money and hopefully it'll go toward local governments as opposed to shareholders. So I'm yeah. in favor of it. I think it's a good thing. Um, it, it's not going to hurt small businesses. A lot of people are worried about that, but that's not a thing. It's corporate taxes and those are for C-Corps, which are large companies where the owners are separate from the managers. So not an issue for small business. Just want to clear that up. So that's what I've got on that. President Biden's going to be a busy man this week and the upcoming weeks. We'll see what happens with President Putin. I'll keep you guys updated on that. But now for my pride project, I call it the pride parade of power. 
So I'm going to have the alliteration this week, <laughs> ma'am. You did it twice. I was trying to. That's I, that's usually what I like to go with. If I can't come up with anything witty, I just go with alliteration. You're so cute. I love yeah, you. I thank you, babe. Um, so I'm going to highlight three CEOs who are part of the LGBTQ community. So all of these CEOs are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies, which means they're the, making bank. Yeah, making bank, but they're also like the captain of like some of the biggest teams in the corporate world. So very exciting, very powerful people. So the first I'm gonna talk about is a cis, cisgender gay man named Jim Fitterling. Okay. He is the CEO of Dow Chemical Company. Um, he's worked at Dow Chemical all of his life. He spent his entire 35 year career there. He was in the closet for a little over 30 years during his career and- Bless him. I know, isn't that sad? He was inspired by another CEO I'm gonna talk about later, to Ooh. come out to his company um and he came out to his entire company on national coming out day in 2014. yay october 11th right yes that's right so <laughs> i'm hella gay if you didn't know. <laughs> so uh yeah he finally came out to everybody and he pushed to create the role of and appoint dow chemicals first chief inclusion officer and he serves as the chair of dow's president's dow's president's inclusion council which works to create and maintain Dow's inclusion and diversity, which is obviously important. I love him. Dow Chemical flies the rainbow flag outside of its headquarters in Midland. Yes! Sorry. Which we love. Um, short little background. He attended the University of Missouri. So Mizzou, they're the Tigers. We don't like them because we went to Georgia, but that's okay because we like this man. Um, <laughs> and he's 59 years old. So if you're not super familiar with Dow, Dow is one of those companies that like maybe you haven't heard of, but you definitely own something that they've made because yes. they're one of the largest three chemical producers in the world and they manufacture plastics, chemicals, and agricultural products. So all of the stuff that makes up other things that you would buy. Um, in 2018, Fitterling was named as the number one LGBT plus executive on the outstanding in business list and was inducted in the outstanding hall of fame. Out as in coming out. Yes. So yeah, he is a good guy. There's not much I could find on his personal life. So I don't know if he has a partner or is married or anything like that, but he's a gay oh, man. No. He is out and proud and we love him for it. He deserves happiness. He does. My next person is a cisgender lesbian woman named Beth Ford. She yes. is the CEO of Lando Lakes. So the dairy company that formerly had the Native American woman on it, which they have changed because racism. Um, and she was part of that, getting that change because she was like, this is no bueno. Um, but she is the CEO of Land Lakes. She is the first woman to lead a company in, or to lead this company in its history, which has been almost a century old. And Heck she is yeah. the first LGBTQ plus woman as a Fortune 500 CEO. Yes. So huge trailblazer here, huge effort to be the first one to do this. And she's also, listen to this statistic, the first or she's one of 33 women right now, 33, who had a Fortune 500 company, 33 out of 500. I mean, you see my face, but the the, the listeners can't, but I'm not surprised, but still right disappointed. Now. Yeah, I'm very disappointed. These companies got to do better with their diversity, especially at the executive level, neither here nor there. Um, but uh, Beth Ford has been out her whole professional career, um, never so coming out for her at work was not really a thing. She was proud about it the whole time, which no matter how you choose to go about it is your decision. You have to do what's best for you. Truly. 
Um, she is married to a woman named Jill, and the three of them, or the two of them, excuse me, have three kids. Ah! Yes, so they're very happy. She has been CEO of Lando Lakes since 2018, and she joined Lando Lakes in 2011 as the chief supply chain and operations officer. And then in 2018, an all-male board decided to make her CEO, which we love. She didn't do this full female ally, but she was still able to convince them that she was the best. So that's super awesome. Um, Beth Ford went to Iowa State University, and then she went to Columbia School of Business for an MBA. Those uh, the Jayhawks. No, baby, this is Cyclones. I'm sorry. <laughs> the Jayhawks are Kansas. <laughs> or not the Jayhawks. I'm sorry. I, I saw a bird. I'm still wrong, but I saw a bird. The but Hawkeyes? it wasn't the I was Iowa is the Hawkeyes. Iowa State is their rival within the state. And Hannah, I'm sorry. I know that Kansas is the Jayhawks. Please don't be mad at us. <laughs> or me. Land O'Lakes is one of the largest producers of butter and cheese in the U.S. And it's not a corporation that's publicly traded. Um, it's American owned by like a ton of farmers, which is kind of cool. America. It's called an ag cooperative. But yeah, Beth Ford has done some cool things as well. So it's very awesome that she's the first LGBTQ plus woman who's a Fortune 500 CEO. You know what I want to say, right? What you going to say? Smooth like butter, like a criminal undercover. Sorry, I'm not going to get us soon. Coming. But <laughs> Stream uh, butter by BTS now. And last but certainly not least, the CEO I alluded to earlier, who inspired Jim Fitteringly to come out, is none other than Apple CEO Tim Cook, who is Yay! a cisgender gay man. Um, he came out in a Bloomberg essay in 2014. His quote on this is, If hearing that the CEO of Apple is gay can help someone struggling to come to terms with who he or she is or bring comfort to anyone who feels alone or inspire people to insist on their equality, then it is worth the trade-off with my own privacy. Yes. He's known for being like a very secretive man. There's like very little known about his private life. I don't know if he's married. No one really knows what's going on in, in terms of like his personal life, but we do know that he is gay and that's why I wanted to highlight it. Um, He has the title of being the first openly gay CEO of a Fortune 500 company, and he was named CEO of Apple in 2011. He previously was COO at Apple under Steve Jobs before he stepped down and eventually sadly passed away. Um, Yes, he joined Apple in 98 as a senior VP for worldwide operations, and since becoming the CEO, Tim Cook has doubled Apple's revenue and profit, and its oh. market value has increased from $348 billion to $1.9 trillion. So you could literally liquidate Apple and pay for the entire COVID stimulus aid. My God. I know. Isn't that crazy? Um, in 2014, so Tim Cook is from um, Mobile, Alabama, and which is not the most friendly place, I would imagine, for a gay man growing up. Not really. Uh, he was inducted into the Alabama Academy of Honor for speaking out about Alabama's record of gay, lesbian, and transgender rights and bisexual. Sorry, I skipped over that by accident. My notes. Okay. It's and okay. he has the highest honor given to Alabamans. So that's pretty cool. I he, love him. He went to Auburn for undergrad, which we're also booing because- Okay, I don't love him. <laughs> and he went to Duke's Fuqua School of Business for his MBA. So- these are kind of the big three that I could find just in terms of how famous they are and how big their companies are. Um, like I said, depending on how the news goes for the rest of the week, I might find some more people to kind of highlight in that community and talk about because I didn't find anyone, at least at the CEO level, who 
was a transgender person. So I would kind of like to find some more about that just to highlight that community as well. But I thought this was a good start. Um, also slight update to my JBS meat hacking story last week. Um, we found out that that company paid 11 million <laughs> in ransom. So quite a bit of money and the colonial pipeline hackers were caught actually. Yay. So the FBI basically ensnared them um, and got the hackers to fall for fall for their trap and they had you know their identity revealed and they got busted so they were able to do that with bitcoin because they were able to go into the ledger and figure out you know they could trace the ip address so heck yeah yeah so they're in trouble um that'll probably be something that's talked about when putin and biden meet we'll see what happens i can't say i'm super optimistic because i don't trust russia but yeah Alyssa, you got anything else for us before we wrap this up Nothing related to my stories um, other than happy Filipino Independence Day. I'm a little late, obviously, because it was yesterday. But other than that, um, stream Meg the Stallion's newest single. Uh, it's not related to anything either of us have talked about this week, but it's fantastic. It's probably good. Yeah, it's so good. And yeah, I'm just here playing with my stickers that I just got in the mail. So <laughs> I love it. Thank you guys for joining us this week for an episode of Woe is Media. We will be back next week with more stories and hope everybody has a wonderful week. Thank you. Yay.